we're in Matthew 27, and we are really close to the end of uh, the book. Because chapter 28 is a fairly short chapter, especially in comparison to chapter 27, which was a very long chapter. So we are in Matthew 27, verse 57. Verse 57. And we'll read there, and then we'll read through chapter 28, though we will... Uh, do part of 27 and just a little bit of 28 today, and then we'll finish the book next week. All right, Matthew 27, verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which had which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he, is, he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And, Lord, we thank you for how it records to us, Lord, all these events, Lord, these promises that you have made concerning uh, the Christ, 
Lord, how it is that you fulfilled all of these things in Jesus of Nazareth uh, by sending him to come uh, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried, and then to be raised again for our justification. And that now he has ascended to your right hand and is sitting there interceding on our behalf and waiting until the day in which you make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet to come again and to take us to be with him. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, have our faith confirmed even more in the truthfulness, Lord, the historicity of the person and the work of Christ. Lord, that we would see uh, that just as he has risen from the grave, so, Lord, also is the hope of all those who put their trust in him, that you will grant to all of those who believe eternal life and resurrection. Uh, and so, Father, we pray that we would believe these things. Lord, put our hope and trust and confidence in them and not in this present world. So, Lord, be with us tonight and build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are in Matthew 27, and we concluded last week with the crucifixion of Christ, that Jesus uh, did truly die on the cross. So his death on the cross was not uh, a mistake. It wasn't that he passed out or fainted or swooned or that he was somehow uh, there only spiritually, uh, but his physical body wasn't there. There are many uh, various interpretations given by uh, cults and uh, false religions concerning the person of Christ and his death on the cross, uh, trying to describe that these things did not actually happen. But the Gospels record to us that Jesus, he really died on the cross, that his body ceased to have life and that he was there and he truly was dead there on the cross. And now, not only did he die, but also he was buried. He was buried, and this is also confirming the reality of his death, but also is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Because it's not just that Jesus died, and just that he was resurrected, but also that he was buried. He died, he was buried, and then he rose again. And all of this is necessary for our salvation, that he had to taste death for us, and he had to enter into the grave in order to come out of it victoriously because all of us will enter into the grave and then we want to rise victoriously and the one who has paved the way for us is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So his resurrection did not happen immediately after his death, but there was this period of time, these three days that took place in order to confirm that he truly did die, but also so that he could be buried and then he would be there in the grave and that is where he would rise up from, right? Because we also will be buried and our hope is that we will attain to the resurrection of the dead, that God will bring us up out of the graves whenever we hear the voice of the Son of Man. So let's pick up then in Matthew 27, verse 57. And it says there, when, evening, when it was evening, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Here, when it was evening, this being after the death of Christ, we know that Jesus went to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning, according to our uh, standard of keeping time, and that his death was around three o'clock in the afternoon. And then there would be the necessity of verifying his death, taking him down from the cross. So this is what it means e evening. It's late afternoon. It's approaching the time of day that is evening. And here, when the evening had come and when Jesus is now dead, there was this rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who comes forward 
who takes courage and asks for the body of Christ to be committed into his care so that Jesus can receive a proper burial, an honorable burial, and not what is common for those who are crucified, who either would be left up on the cross for many, many days so that the birds would come and pick their flesh and they would be a spectacle for all eyes to see. But we know because the next day is the Sabbath day, this is why they wanted the bones, the legs of the thieves to be broken was so that they would die more speedily. That way they could be taken down because it would be a violation or a pollution on the land of Israel for someone to be hanging on a cross on the Sabbath day. And so they want those things to take place and their deaths to occur before the end of this day. Now, Jesus is already dead. He dies so they don't break his bones in terms of his legs. But the other two were not yet dead, and so they do break their bones. But typically, when you have someone who is a criminal like this, someone who dies this type of ignoble death, their uh, burial is in accordance with their death, right? It is an ignoble, it is a sacrilegious type of burial. They're not given an honorable burial that you might give to someone that you love or to someone who has a good reputation amongst the people, right? Because they are criminals, right, in this way. So they would either be left on the cross or thrown into a ditch or left there on the open ground to be exposed to wild animals, to birds, to decay, to all sorts of things that would be horrible uh, to see and to experience. And yet here, this does not happen to Jesus. And this is all according to the will of God and being directed by the very providence of God. That There is this rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who comes and asks for the body of Christ to be given to him. And here it says that he was a disciple of Christ. He was one who was a member of the council, a man of wealth and a man who was a, uh, on the council there amongst the Jews, yet he was a secret disciple of Christ up to this point. But now he makes his discipleship public, public and known to everyone because he's going and publicly asking for the body of Christ and in doing this is showing his allegiance to him in this way. So he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate grants it to him. So Pilate, who has overseen all of this, who had the authority to put him to death, also has the authority, though the Jews would despise this, and I'm sure would be very happy for him to have a very ignoble uh, burial, yet they don't have the authority to put him to death, nor do they have the authority to do anything with his body afterwards. But Pilate is the governor. He's the one with this authority. So Joseph goes to him, and Pilate, knowing that Jesus was an innocent man and all that had happened to him uh, wasn't right, he has no animosity toward him it, like the Jews did to want to see him put to open shame like this. He's happy to concede and to grant the body to Joseph so that he can have a proper burial. John chapter 19 in John chapter 19, 38 to 42, we have more here concerning this. John 19, 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 
Now the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So here, this is where we find that he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, right? Even many of the leaders believed in him, but because they were afraid of the scribes and Pharisees, they were not confessing him openly because they had made this pact, the leadership, that anyone who openly follows Christ would be put out of the synagogues, right? And we remember in John chapter 9 with the blind man that was healed, his parents were reluctant to speak on his behalf because of the animosity of the Jews and that they had said anyone who was confessing Christ would be put out of the synagogues. Well, Nicodemus is a man of high standing. Not only is he uh, a member of a synagogue, but he also is a member of the leadership, right? The very leadership of the nation. He is there on the council, and if he confesses Christ, then he has much to lose. Yet, we see here that ultimately... He overcomes his fear, his timidity. He takes courage and he does what is good and right. And in this way, he is now making an open profession of his faith in Christ, right? Doing it publicly for everyone to see. And this is necessary for us to make a public profession of our faith in Christ. You cannot be a secret disciple of Christ, but we must own him publicly. We must own him before men, right? Whoever confesses me before men then Jesus will confess us before the Father and before His angels. But if we deny Christ, or if we're ashamed of Christ, then He will be ashamed of us. So up to this point, Joseph had been afraid, fearful, timid. There was a sense of ashamedness of Christ, and yet now he is coming openly to take Him and to honor Him and to show His allegiance to Him. Also, Nicodemus is with him. Nicodemus isn't mentioned in Matthew because Joseph is the primary one who is instigating this, but then Nicodemus joins in. But in John, Nicodemus is mentioned as well because Nicodemus was there in John 3 and then later also in the Gospel of John. And here Nicodemus also comes and takes part in this honoring of the body of Christ, showing their love and their devotion for Him. Also, Mark 15 Mark 15, 43 to 44. Mark 15, 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So here it says that he was a prominent member of the council. So this is a man of high rank amongst the Jewish nation who was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he believed in the kingdom of God and he had come to believe that Christ was the king of that kingdom, that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Christ who was promised, who would usher in the kingdom of God, but he had to gather up courage. Up to this point, he had not gathered up his courage, but now he gathers up courage and he goes into Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate grants it after ascertaining whether or not he was dead because he was surprised that he would be dead so quickly because it typically typically took a longer period of time. 
Okay, back to Matthew 27, then verse 59. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Here, Joseph gives to Jesus a proper burial. And according to John 19, when we see that Nicodemus comes, also bringing a large amount of spices and ointments in which to uh, put this on the body in order to cover the stench of death, right? And this is a way to show your honor for the person, right? Because we consist not only of a soul, but also of a body, right? And the body was created by God and the body is good. So though the soul has parted from the body and in that way the person is dead, yet because the body is still a, a part of the person, there is this desire to honor the person, to show the love for them even in their death by giving to them a proper burial according to the Jewish custom. And here Jesus' burial is a burial that is fit for a king, right? He's given a very honorable burial that would go beyond even what the common person would receive in that the tomb in which he was laid in was the tomb of a rich man. And then the way that he was adorned with such spices and ointments was what would be a custom for a rich person or for someone of noble birth or of royal uh, lineage. And this is because of who Christ is, right? God saw fit to honor his son in this way. And already here we see the beginnings of the exaltation of Christ. Even in his burial, though he has not ascended into his great, the greatness of his glory, already we see that God is exalting his son in even the way that he is buried in the grave in which he occupies. So here he is buried. And this is an important part of our faith. If we go to Genesis chapter 3, Burial is the result of the entrance of sin into the world. And we are buried in the ground, right? Because we return to the dust. So for Jesus to bear the curse of sin and the curse of the law for us, it was necessary that not only he would die, but also that he would be buried into the dirt or into the ground. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God made the man out of dust, and then to the dust he will return. This being the curse that is accompanied his transgression of the law of God. He would be buried, and then his body would undergo decay and return back to the dust. Now, in the case of Christ, he's buried, but he does not undergo decay because God will not allow his Holy One to see corruption in that way. However, he is buried into the grave, right? He enters into the grave, into the tomb, and that is where he will rise from. Also, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, we have a summation by the Apostle Paul of the gospel that he preached. And we'll notice that in this, the focus is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So He died, He was buried, and He was raised all according to the Scriptures. Also here, we see that He was placed in a new tomb. A tomb that had not yet been occupied or used. So no bodies, no other bodies had ever been placed in this tomb. Jesus was the first body to enter into this tomb. And it was for a very short stay, right? Just for a few days there. And then he was out of there. And that's important because there can be no confusion, right? Either his body is in the tomb or it's not in the tomb, right? And it can't be a matter of, well, there were 20 other people in here or were there 19 and now there's 20, you know, if there's all these other bodies in there, then maybe we see his, maybe we don't. But if it's a new tomb and there's been no body laid in there and there is a body there, then that means Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. But if it is a new tomb and there's no body of Christ there, then something has happened, right? Either he has been raised from the dead or as they will falsely claim, his disciples came and stole his body. But whatever it is, his body is not here in this tomb anymore. And this is why it was necessary for it to be a new tomb. Also, it is a rich man's tomb, a rich man's tomb. And this would be in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah prophesies that his burial will be with the rich man. Isaiah 53, 9 says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, and he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Here, his grave was assigned with wicked men. This not because of his own sin, but because he came to bear the penalty for wicked men. So he is associated with wicked men in his death and in his grave because the reason men die and go into the grave is because of their sin, right? Because of their wickedness. And Jesus did not die and go to the grave because of his own sin, but because he became sin for us. But also he was with a rich man in his death. And who is that rich man he was with in his death? Joseph of Arimathea, who came and took his body and placed it in his own new tomb that had been hewn there out of the rock. And then they roll a stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away, which was customary if someone was buried in one of these tombs in a rock like this, in a cave or, or something like that, that you would want to put something over it to keep animals, to keep wild beasts, to keep pe you know, people, kids, you know, teenagers, you know, you can't trust them. Even back then they would want to go and caught pranks and stuff like that so that they would roll these things there in order to keep uh, these types of things out of it. But this will also be important because it's also going to be sealed later by the authority of Pilate and therefore it could not be broken except by his decree or by someone who outranks him, right? Someone who outranks Pilate in terms of authority had the ability to do so. Then 61, and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Here, these women who were there at the death of Christ when he was there on the cross, they observe these things. They observe where it is that he's buried so that they can then themselves come and give to him a 
proper honoring uh, that they desire to do because his burial had to take place very quickly. The next day is the Sabbath day. And so it all needed to be done before the sun went down, before the setting of the sun. So this had to be done quickly and they were not able to grieve and to mourn for him and to honor him the way that they wanted. So there they are grieving, but also observing for the purpose of knowing where his tomb is so that they can come back, not on the next day, which was the Sabbath, but the following day on Sunday morning in order to honor Christ because of their love and devotion to him. Okay, verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go make it as secure as you know. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard, and they set a seal on the stone. Here, the next day, which is the day after the day of preparation, the day after the death of Christ. So he died on Friday, the day of preparation, and then the next day would be Saturday. This is the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath day, the scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests, they go together with Pilate, and they're asking Pilate uh, to provide a guard and a seal to make sure that the disciples do not come and steal the body of Christ. Now, this is a pretty uh, amazing thing, what is taking place here, especially if we go back to Matthew chapter 12. This is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. Because we remember in Matthew chapter 12, they were very quick to point out and to condemn Jesus and his disciples for picking a few heads of grain on what day? On the Sabbath day. But what are they doing here on the Sabbath day? They're going to a Gentile, to a Gentile ruler, and now they're going into this graveyard to go there and make sure that this is secure and sealed, which all requires work to be done on the Sabbath day. But they don't have any problems about this. Yet when Jesus and his disciples are picking a few heads of grain, which was not a violation of the Sabbath day, there they are accusing them, condemning them of many things. So this is the kind of hypocrisy we're dealing with with the scribes and Pharisees. They're the ones that have a log in their own eye, and yet they're pointing out specks in others. They're the ones who are straining out gnats, swallowing their camels, swallowing them whole, right? Just swallowing them right down. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So here they are quick to point the finger at Christ and his disciples 
for something that is not a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are not breaking the Sabbath, but they're keeping it. And what they're doing is in perfect line with the Spirit and their proper understanding and interpretation of the Sabbath day. What they're doing is not consistent with keeping the Sabbath, right? And even with the right interpretation, but according to their own rigid interpretation, it especially isn't in keeping with the Sabbath. And yet here they are going about doing this, having to get these soldiers to come and seal this tomb, do this work all on the Sabbath day. And so it shows you what kind of men they were. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 23, Matthew 23, verses 1 to 4. Matthew 23, 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They put burdens on the shoulders of men, and then they themselves don't even keep these burdens. And they don't help people at all in these things. They're just a bunch of hypocrites who want to go around condemning and accusing everyone of all of their perceived violations and sins against God. So here, they themselves are breaking the Sabbath day, and yet they have the audacity to accuse Jesus and his disciples of doing so earlier in his ministry. So there is that. Then 63, they say, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. They know that Jesus has been preaching his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. These are unbelievers, right? We, we all know and recognize that these are not believing people. These are unbelieving Jews. These aren't even his disciples. These are the ones that put him to death. And yet they know that Jesus has been preaching his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And they even know that he has been preaching that he's going to die. And then three days later, he's going to rise again. And they're convinced enough of this that they even want them to put this guard so that the disciples cannot come and steal away the body of Christ. Now, when did Jesus teach these things? Well, he taught them throughout the course of his ministry, but a couple of places. First, John chapter 2, John 2, 19, John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now here, they don't understand what he's talking about. They think he's talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body. But he is here making a reference, an inference, to his death. Then also, Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. And verse 40. 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then 1621 also. 1621. 
It says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So He's teaching these things openly, publicly, both in private to His disciples, but also He's teaching them publicly as well. And we know from John's Gospel that if everything Jesus did and everything that Jesus said was written down, He says there's not even enough books in the world to contain all of these things. So what we have in the Gospels is just a summary of all the things that Jesus taught. But we know that His whole course of His ministry for three years was preaching and teaching the Word of God. And what is the central component of the Word of God? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's preaching the gospel to the people, which is the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And even here, the unbelievers know that He's preaching His resurrection and that it's going to take place three days after His death. So they know these things. And all of this, though they are unbelieving, this all plays into the will and purposes of God, right? Because it has a purpose in that it is going to give a greater confirmation to His disciples and to the people of the actual resurrection of Christ. Because the alternate view is that the disciples came and stole His body. But how could the disciples do that if there was a guard set there at the tomb? Right? So even what they're doing here in scheming against Christ, actually it is working against them, right? Against them. It would be better for them to have not done this. Then it would be easier for them to convince the people that the disciples came and stole the body. But the presence of the guard and the seal on the tomb gives greater evidence of the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what God does to the people of the world, to the sinners. He confounds their wisdom. Right? He subverts them in every way, shape, or form. Right? They think that they are opposing God, and yet God takes what they do and actually turns it upon their own head. Right? They dig a pit, and then they're the ones that fall into it. So, they want an order to make it secure for three days. Right? Because they know He said that after three days He's going to rise, and that the disciples might come, steal the body away, convince the people that He rose from the grave, then the last deception will be worse than the first. He's already deceived the people by convincing them that He is the Christ, and many people hold Him to be a prophet or to be the Christ. But now, if the disciples steal His body and then begin to uh, convince the people that He's risen from the grave, that this miracle has happened, then it's going to be even worse than the first. All the people are going to go after Him. So that is what they are afraid of, and this is why they go to Pilate and ask for the guard. So Pilate says, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. So he grants them permission to go, have a guard, and make it as secure as they know how to make it, which would be very secure, right? They would want this, and it's not like they need to do this for 10 years. They just need to do it for a couple of days, right? So they would have sufficient means and plenty of manpower to make sure that everything was guarded in the proper way, okay? And so they made the grave secure along with the guard and set a seal on the stone. They set a seal on it so that you could tell whether it had been broken or not, so that it would be obvious whether the stone had been rolled away. Although it's going to be pretty obvious, right, when it's, <laughs> when it's rolled away. Okay, then verse, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at 
the grave. Here, this is after the Sabbath, the Sabbath being Saturday or the seventh day of the week, and now this being the first day of the week. Now, notice here the difference between the disciples of Christ, these women, their righteousness, their godliness, versus the scribes and Pharisees. Because they were happy to violate the Sabbath day, but these women who want to honor Christ, they rested according to the commandment. They didn't do it on the Sabbath day, but they rested according to the commandment. And then when do they come to do this good deed for the body of Christ? They come the day afterwards, the day afterwards. So they're more holy and righteous and conscientious and desirous to obey God and walk in His ways. Though Jesus and His disciples have been accused of playing loose with the law of Moses and loose with the law of God, this isn't the case at all. They're the ones that don't observe the law of God, the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus and his followers are very conscientious. They're very sincere and faithful in their devotion to God. And here you see it in these women. They rested according to the commandment. And then they come after the Sabbath day on the, at dawn on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday morning. And they're also coming at dawn very early in the morning because they want to honor Christ. They love him so much that as soon as it is lawful for them to do this, they're going to do it. They're not going to wait. They're going to wait till later in the day. They want to come as quickly as possible. This shows their desire to be obedient, their desire to honor Christ, to show their love and devotion to Him. And here it is on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the day of resurrection, right? The day of resurrection is Sunday. And this is why we worship not on Saturday, as they did in the Old Covenant, but on Sunday, as is appropriate with the New Covenant, on the day of resurrection, okay? So we're going to spend the rest of our time tracing that out through a couple of passages in the Old Testament. And then we'll deal with 28 in its entirety next week, okay? Okay, so a couple of passages first. Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, right, the, the day of resurrection, that day is a very important day in the history of redemption. Psalm 2, verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son Today I have begotten you. Now the question is, what day did God the Father begot the Son? And by begot the Son, it doesn't mean that there was a day, a time when Jesus was not the Son of God, and then there was a time that He became the Son of God. There are some false interpreters and heretics who, who teach and who believe those things. Jesus was always the Son of God. He's the Son of God for all eternity. When he was incarnate and came in human flesh, when he was the baby in the manger, he was the Son of God. The whole time of his uh, ministry on earth, he was the Son of God, right? So he was the Son of God for all time, though his divinity was clothed, it was hidden under his sufferings and under his sorrows, so that men could not see these things. But here in Psalm 2 7, when God is begetting the Son, it means when the Father manifested His love and who Jesus was. And what is that day where God manifests and made clear and obvious to the whole world that Jesus is the Christ? And that is the day of resurrection, according to Acts chapter 13, 32 and 33. Acts 13, 32 and 33. 
says, And we preach to you the good news of the promises made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that He raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So there, God fulfilled His promises. He raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So, you are my son, today I have begotten you, has reference then to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the sign given by God to manifest to all the world that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord Christ, that He was God clothed in human flesh. And this is as we read earlier from Matthew chapter 16. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except what? What was the sign that they would, that they would receive? Which is a sign not just for them, it's a sign for the whole world. And it is resurrection. It's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the sea monster for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days, and then He will rise again. And this is the sign that manifests His person, who He is, and the love and the honor that God the Father bestows upon the Son by making Him the firstborn from among the dead, right? Granting to Him resurrection and raising His body to an immortal life, his human nature to an immortal, indestructible life, and for him to be the forefront, the first fruits, and the forerunner of all of those who would rise from the dead. Also, Acts 17, Acts 17 and 22 to 31. Here, the resurrection is the proof that God has furnished to the whole world that He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man that He has appointed. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So he's fixed this day of judgment and he's going to judge the world through one man that he has appointed and the proof that Jesus of Nazareth is that one man is the resurrection from the dead. He raised him from the dead setting his seal of approval on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Psalm 18. Psalm 8, 
not Psalm 18, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Let's pick up in verse 19. This is a psalm, a messianic psalm of the prayers of Christ during his times of sufferings, but also his deliverance from these things. Psalm 118, 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, right? He is to us a precious stone, but to the unbelievers, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he's the stone that the builders rejected. The builders being the leadership of the Jewish people. They rejected Christ, but God has chosen him. And how has God proven that he is the cornerstone by which he will build up the people of God, the household of faith? by the resurrection from the dead. And that is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is His resurrection, the day of resurrection. That is the day that we rejoice in and are glad in. It is marvelous in our eyes because it proves to us that He is the very cornerstone, the foundation upon which the church is built, right? In which we have salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, another Psalm, Psalm 16. Psalm 16, that our goal here is just to see that in many of these Psalms and Old Testament passages, there were predictions of the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This passage is quoted by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Whenever he's preaching there that sermon in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, of Nazar Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, 
because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. So here, Psalm 16 is speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Right? Not that he didn't die. He did die, but God would not let his body undergo decay. Right? Because he would raise him before that decay would begin. Before it would begin, he would raise him to an immortal life. Then, one last passage, or two more passages. First is Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which is another psalm that we quoted uh often or referenced often from Matthew 27 concerning the death of Christ. But here Psalm 22 verses 1 to 21 are describing the sorrows, the sufferings of Christ that he's experiencing primarily there on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is when he talks about the strong bulls of Bashan, uh, the evildoers, these dogs have encompassed me. They're dividing my garments from among themselves. And he's praying for God to deliver him from these things. That's verses 1 to 21 is predicting the death, the sufferings, the sorrows of Christ. Then in verse 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the affliction. Nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. How is he, if he's dead, able to tell the name of God to his brethren and praise God in the midst of the assembly? And it is through his resurrection from the dead, right? It is his glorification, his resurrection, by which he's able to accomplish these things. And then one last Old Testament passage would be Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, we'll read verses 10 to 12. We know here that Isaiah 53, we read from verse 9 earlier, that his grave was assigned with wicked man and he was with a rich man in his death. So it's obvious that he died, right? In Isaiah 53. Then verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself, I guess my phone. <clears throat> if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So there he will see his offspring. 
he will prolong his days. Though he dies, he will prolong his days, and this happens through his resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then he will even divide the portion with the many. Okay, then also from Matthew chapter 28, the first day of the week. The first day of the week is when the women come, and the first day of the week is the day of resurrection, and this is why we worship the Lord on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week. And we do have two passages in the New Testament that refer to the first day of the week in this way. First is 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 2. First Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So the day that they were going to collect this offering for the poor, for these poor churches, was the first day of the week, which was the, week, the time when they were gathering together to worship the Lord. And then in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, Verses 9 to 11, here it refers to it this day as the Lord's Day. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So there he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day is Sunday, which is the day of the Lord's resurrection, right? That is why it is referred to in this way. And this is why we worship Christ on the Lord's day. We worship the Lord. We gather for public worship, not on the seventh day of the week, as was in the old covenant from creation until the coming of Christ, but on the Lord's day, because it is the day fitting for us to worship, because it is the day in which Christ was resurrected from the dead. And we enter into that rest with him. Christ has entered into his rest in that he has completed the work of redemption. There's nothing left for Christ to do. He's seated at the right hand of God. Now, in terms of the accomplishment or the uh, manifesting of it uh, fully and completely, there are still things that are, are future and that we are waiting for. All of his enemies have not been made a footstool for his feet yet, right? We don't have our resurrected bodies yet. The new heavens and new earth are not here yet. But in terms of what he had to do for his sufferings, his death, his res all that has taken place already, and there's nothing left for Jesus to actually do in order to bring about our redemption. So he has ceased that work of redemption in terms of him needing to do something to accomplish it. Everything has been accomplished, right? It is finished by Christ. He has entered into that rest, and then we need to enter into that rest as well. And we rest in Christ by trusting in him, his death and his resurrection, for the forgiveness of sins without any assistance and without us adding any of our own merits or any of our own righteousness or any work or any ritual there's nothing that we add to the work of christ in order to complete our salvation and redemption it has all been accomplished 
by Him. And so we enter into that rest by trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ. And then we meet together to celebrate that on the Lord's Day. And we're doing it on Wednesday as well. But this is optional, so it's not mandatory. But Sunday is mandatory, so... <laughs>